Section 15 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 15. Scotland. The early history of Scotland is one of great confusion. Even down to the 18th century, the annals are filled with party strife, border raids, and petty warfare. Frequent changes in the government make the national conditions of progress and decline not as definitely marked as in most countries. Scotland was a very backward nation, and continued till recent times in a condition of lawlessness, rudeness and ignorance, long after some parts of the continent had reached a high degree of culture and splendour. I shall not attempt to trace the history of Scotland prior to 1306, the ascension of Robert Bruce. This national hero, who stands in comparison with his successors, somewhat isolated and grandeur, did a great deal for his country, besides freeing it from the overlordship of England. He, to a considerable extent, consolidated the rival elements, and the legal aspects of his administration should not be overlooked. At the Parliament of Scone, in 1318, many wise laws were passed touching the administration of justice, the organisation and mustering of the army, and freedom of the church. It is true that the long wars of Bruce's reign had their dark side, especially in their effect on the condition of the poorer classes, but the general tenor of the period was doubtless successful. He was not only beloved in his own day, but his memory was long after venerated, a notable career and an excellent instance of personal influence. The next administrator was the Earl of Moray, who acted as regent from 1329 to 1332. Here one notes, as elsewhere, that minorities themselves are not to blame when conditions are found to be weak. Macaulay cites Scotland to prove that minorities are harmful, but the fault lies not in the form of government, but in the absence of a strong hand. The Earl of Moray was a just, vigorous and wise man. His administration was eminently successful. The next regent, Donald, Earl of Mar, a nephew of Robert Bruce, held the reins but a very short time, for he soon led the nation to disaster, and was defeated and slain in 1333. Mara is described as having no qualifications for the office. The remaining years of the minority of David II were equally unsuccessful. Disaster, defeats, and confusion filled the period. Four different persons occupied the office of regent, but no vigorous characters can be found. David II himself proved a weak king. He is summarized as incapable, headstrong, extravagant, passionate, and addicted to pleasures. As for national affairs, the Scots were defeated at Neville's Cross. The English overran the southern part of Scotland, and the king was taken a prisoner to England, being released only after his countrymen had paid a large ransom. The eternal state of the nation was deplorable. Turbulent nobles impoverished the commoners, and the commoners flew at each other's throats. Notwithstanding this, some parliamentary advance can be discovered. In attaining parliamentary growth under a weak king, Scotland resembled England. She did the same. It should be noticed under a latter weak king, Robert III. These facts should be contrasted with the stunted growth of the parliaments in Castile, Aragon, and Portugal. Under Robert II, 1371 to 1380, who founded the House of Stuart, there was some improvement. The Scots were victorious at Otterbourne, which did much to remove the dread of England, and gave a greater national prestige. But still the internal affairs of the northern kingdom remained very unsatisfactory. Continued warfare exhausted the country, and social material progress was much retarded. Robert II was not a great, though he was a naturally clever person. 
he was lazy, at that time of life already in declining health. The portrait of the first of the Stuarts is drawn by Froissart as a man not valiant, with red bleared eyes who would rather lie still than ride. His son, Rob Third was even more indolent, and was furthermore deficient in natural parts. He held no power over the nobles, or over his jealous and turbulent brothers, and the whole picture of Scotland is one of dire confusion, of English raids and private warfare, and before noted, in spite of this lack of leadership, Parliament met and acted new laws which somewhat bettered the condition of the lower classes. In the next period, occurs the first able and vigorous leader since the Earl of Mar. This man was Robert, Duke of Albany, younger son of Robert II. Although no sudden, complete and wonderful change took place, there is no question, but the sixteen years accredited to him count for decided improvement. First, the complete subjection of the malcontents. Second, the important victory of Harlow, though under the leadership of another of the state. And third, the foundation of the earliest university in Scotland, St Andrews. A quotation from the Dictionary of Natural Biography with a fair view of Albany, and also his influence. Of his strong personality and great ability, his remarkable ascendancy over the turbulent nobility is sufficient proof. Chroniclers of the period, while they bear witness to his imposing presence, are almost equally unanimous in extolling his affability, temperance, justice, fortitude and wisdom. Albany died in 1419, and at once three years of weakness, disruption and retrogression set in under his son, the indolent and incompetent Murdoch. There was soon no doubt as to the incompetence and corruption of his rule, and the majority of the nation became more than ever anxious for the return of the king. This refers to King James I, who since boyhood had been held captive in England. It is worth noting that a sudden break occurs here between two strong periods, the reign of James I, 1424-1437, proved the most uniformly and entirely progressive in all early Scottish history. The foundations of this detute law, the suppression of private warfare, regular frequent meetings of the Parliament, a general survey of the kingdom for the purpose of valuation, a regulation of weights and measures and coinage, in fact the beginning of something worthy of the name of civilization, and a progress that might have endured and developed as Scotland continued to have rulers like James I. James I was, without doubt, the greatest Scottish king since Bruce, and the general excellence and variety of his gifts and his noble moral character make him compare favourably with royalty of the first grade. He was strong, brave and hardy, just and liberal, and besides long and able legislator, administrator and organiser, was one of the most accomplished princes of his time. Indeed, for Scotland he was far ahead of his time. The policy of James I in reducing the power of the baronage as against the clergy and the commoners though generally so welcome to the mass of the people, could naturally not appeal to the barons themselves. A conspiracy took root among some of the latter classes, which ended in the murder of this excellent king in 1436, when he was only 43 years of age. Scotland enjoyed no more progress for a number of years, and moreover, the peaceful and settled state of affairs terminated abruptly. The minority of James II was not controlled so much by weak hands as it was by over-grasping ones, Confusion and the old games of party warfare filled the period. The conditions here appear to be directly due to the outward form of government, not to lack of ability in the regency. With the maturity of the king came a gradual improvement. It took some time to suppress the civil wars, for the party of the Douglas was very strong. 
The defeat at Arkenholm in 1454 placed everything to the advantage of the Stuarts, and Douglas's subsequent flight over the border left James free to restore the much-needed order within his own domain. This he did with astonishing success. James II had all the energy of his father, and was even more successful in suppressing the lawless barons, and in giving to Scotland some little hope of that stability of government which is a first necessity for national advance. Border raids have become chronic, and these not wholly cease, yet comparatively speaking, the brief reign of James II was an advantage to Scotland. There was further progress in legislation, especially in measures looking towards agricultural improvement, finance, and the rights of the lower classes. Unfortunate accidents took off the good rulers of Scotland, before they had time to develop their best selves or demonstrate beneficent influences. James II was killed at the siege of Roxburgh, aged 30, by the bursting of a cannon. Attilly was new in Scotland, and James, whose interest was great, was watching it within too close a range. Another minority followed, which brings added argument that such an arrangement of the government is not necessarily a disadvantage. The man at the head of affairs was Kennedy, Bishop of St Andrews, a grandson of Robert III. He has been very highly praised for wisdom and excellence of moral character. His death in 1466, after a six years' regency, was lamented as a public calamity. This peaceful and moderate rule had given the law-abiding class a hope for a permanently well-ordered future. But this was not to be. As soon as Kennedy died, the troubles began again. From that date, or through the remainder of the minority of James III, and doing his own feeble rule, nothing but plots and counterplots, weakness and criminality, filled the dreary pages of the history of the period. James IV, differing from his father, was at least brave and energetic, and with this ascension there came a decided improvement over the conditions which existed under his father. The capacity of James IV was not equal to his ambition, and his deficiencies were very early marked in the results of his sovereignty. Bold and imaginative, his somewhat quixotic designs served a very good purpose up to a certain point, but carried with them a chain of evils. James IV was brave and sufficiently firm to quell the nobles, energetic enough to lay the foundations for a considerable naval power, skilful in diplomacy, and we see Scotland entering the field of European politics. But the results of his personal weaknesses are no less noticeable. James IV's extravagance, his rashness, his poor generalship are seen, first, in the improvement of the exeter, and second, in the disastrous defeat at Flodden Field, the death roll of which surpasses any other battle in Scottish history. Again, a long minority and again unsettled conditions followed the reign of James IV. More than a passing word, too, must be given the Duke of Albany, who was a cousin of the king and held the regency during part of this troubled period. It is difficult to get the truth about this Albany. He seems an enigmatical character, but a difference of opinion can easily exist. Perhaps the best view is that Albany was a naturally able man, and that the first part of his administration was successful, the latter part unsuccessful. His task with restoring order among the nobles was exceedingly difficult, and he lacked the ideals and the moral courage necessary for such a discouraging task. He sought repeatedly in France respite from his burdens, and a rule over Scotland in the 16th century without constant vigorous personal circumspection was out of the question. With James V, 1528-1542, the nation's fortunes changed. He was not a very great king, but he was active and vigorous, 
well inclined towards the lower classes, while at the same time he kept the refractory nobles in check. With the exception of the Scotch defeat at Solway, this reign may be called prosperous. There is little of interest in the four periods which follow, at least as concerns advance or decline in the economic and strictly material conditions of the country. A weak regency under a weak regent. The Earl of Arran is followed by a regency under a very able woman, Mary of Lorraine. The events of the Reformation occupy nearly the entire period, and it is much to the credit of the Queen Regent that the years of her rule, 1554-1560, were not a time of distinct retrogression. The reign of Mary, Queen of Scots, interesting as it is from so many points of view, has very little bearing on the present inquiry, because, like that of the region which precedes it, the material or economic affairs are so confused that it is impossible to say which way the scales turn. All the interests is converged around religious questions. Perhaps it would be only fair to call this reign one of decline owing to the civil conflicts which form its most conspicuous features. In the minority of James VI, 1570-1587, there are five distinct sub-periods. At two points we notice superior or plus conditions. The first of these is clearly due to the energy and firmness of Murray. The second was under Earl Morton, not a member of the royal family. This man was entirely inscrupulous and merciless, but he put the country in order and gave it peace. The other three sub-periods of the Regency were under weak control and were characterised by the usual turmoil and disorders. James VI of England was a shrewd, learned and pedantic person. He was both strong and weak, both wise and foolish, but is not rightfully described as a wisest fool in Christendom. James was not very wise. Wisdom in the sense of good judgment was what he lacked. He certainly was no fool, for no fool could ever have left such an interesting impression of himself upon historical memory. However, we may view the curious make-up of James's nature. It has no special importance here, for the reason that the course of Scotland's progress is, at this time, too ill-defined, too difficult to measure. The king's influence appeared in many small matters, but in a large way it is enough to say that this is a mediocre or weak period under a mediocre or weak king. Nor did the civil wars of Charles I's time furnish that sort of historical reading which makes it easy to affirm whether the general national tendency is upward or downward. In spite of all the evils of internecine wars, perhaps it is true that, viewed from a political and moral standpoint, the covenanting struggle was a very important factor in Scottish civilization. However that may be, the march of material progress is not easy to measure. Under the vigorous control of Cromwell, there was a short period of uplift, clearly traceable to his own iron hand. This is perhaps the last occasion when this country received any aid in its development directly as a benefit from any one person in supreme control. Scotland had never been so fortunate as to have many with the capacity and position to confer blessings of this heroic nature. Slowly but surely, she had been able to work out her own destiny and develop her own civilization almost entirely unassisted by centrifugal forces springing from central authority. Still, the absence of that central authority, which the pure hazard of fate made it her lot to endure, was not without marked retarding power for a long time. Scotland and England are almost alike in having developed, prior to the 19th century, respectable and representative governments by themselves and from their own people. England and Scotland, interior to about the 17th century, were both very greatly affected by the personnel of their kings or regents, but not entirely so, 
not quite so much so as continental countries both kingdoms gained in parliamentary strength and importance under weak and inefficient sovereigns but in this respect england notably exceeded her northern neighbour after the seventeenth century both england and scotland made almost constant political material and social progress in spite of comparatively weak rulers this latter history of scotland requires i think no further detailed analysis just here one searches for the royal influence one finds it comparatively nil other forces come into play which raised the whole mass of the population or at least a considerable portion of it here the king stepped out the commoners stepped in let us not be rash and jump into a conclusion as to the cause of this important change let us not suppose that the usual references to the spread of education and the growth of political liberty will suffice the question of the rise of the commoner in northwestern europe is an interesting one and looked at in a broad way is one of the most extraordinary and unparalleled phenomena in the whole history of the world we have scarcely begun to measure these forces biological and political both internal and external hereditary and environmental which hidden and complicated as they are kill to disentanglement only by the prolonged investigation of science questions like the rise of the commoner in modern great britain had better be left for future investigation end of section fifteen